Good morning, everyone. Praise the Lord. The scripture reading that we're going to have is um, Matthew, it's taken from Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 24 from the New International Version. It's all about treasures in heaven. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where most and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where most and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lump of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is the word of God. So what makes a person rich? These days you might think if you can actually pay your mortgage, fill up your gas, and buy groceries all in the same week, you must be rich. But seriously, um, the world would say a person is rich when they have you know, a, a full bank account, uh, stocks, money, properties, businesses, maybe a lot of nice cars, stuff, Right? Now, is it wrong to have stuff? Society seems to be quite divided on that question these days, even within the church. We might think stories like the story of the rich young man or the rich young ruler that's found in uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, suggests that it's wrong to have stuff. You know the story. The young man comes before Jesus. He's very rich. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, you know, in the conversation says, well, you know the commandments. Do not steal. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not give false testimony. Honor your mother and father. Young man's probably thinking in his heart, this is great. He says, all these things I have done since I was a boy. In his heart, he's probably singing, looks like I've made it. You know, I mean, he's, he's happy. This is great. Thank you for the answer. But then Jesus says to him, mm, yet one thing you still lack. He says, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven Then come follow me. And when the rich man heard this, he went away sad because he was very wealthy. He walked away from the message of eternal life because he treasured 
stuff, his wealth, more than anything else, even more than eternal life with Christ. Now, some would look at that story and say, this is what we must all do. We must sell all that we have, give it to the poor, and then we'll have treasures in heaven. But that isn't actually the point of that story. The problem was simply that the young man treasured his wealth more than anything else. In fact, Jesus goes on to simply say how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because many probably think they're secure and in their hearts they sing, looks like we've made it. If we treasure or pursue wealth or our possessions more than we treasure Christ, we have a problem. Wealth itself is not evil. What you do with that wealth might be. And if you treasure it more than Christ, that is definitely a problem. But you can also use it for good. Take the story in Acts chapter 4. Those of you who are reading the 5x5x5 reading plan would be in Acts right now, and you would have come across this story. I love how uh, chapter 4 ends. Most of the time we focus on verse 32 in particular. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money up from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought it, the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So they had possessions, but they used their wealth to bless others. They didn't sell all they have, but from time to time did sell things like fields or houses, things they owned, so that there were no poor among them. So it, it it doesn't. It matters how we use the blessings that we have, the riches that God blesses us with. So it's not wrong to have possessions, but there's a difference between having them and treasuring them. And in case you're wondering where I'm going with this, I'm not advocating uh, or defending sort of the prosperity gospel in any way, uh, nor am I advocating a perpetual vow of poverty. I just want to address... What is it that we treasure most in our hearts? What do we value most, okay? So the world would measure richness based on, you want to advance that first slide? Thanks. The world would measure richness based on our bank accounts, the things that we've accumulated, our possessions. But we as Christians can count ourselves rich when we have God as our hope and security, Christ as our advocate, and the Spirit as our helper. That makes us rich beyond comparison. By faith, we have the boundless riches of Christ. So then, if that is the reality, how should we live, regardless of what we have or don't have? How should we view things like wealth and poverty and the like? According to Josh Buse, who, who writes about this passage, 
he says, in a general sense, Jesus was teaching his followers to use an accurate scale to weigh the value of things. Keep in context, keep in mind the context of our passage. The context of our passage is the Sermon on the Mount. Chapters 5 through 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus teaches about, you know, blessed, the Beatitudes, blessed are you who are poor, blessed who are, are those who mourn, etc., etc. He teaches the disciples and others who are listening about loving their enemies, about forgiveness, about the seriousness of sin, prayer, fasting, so much more. And in the first half of chapter 6, he's, Jesus describes or, or he addresses the believer's private life, uh, things that others won't really know about, things like giving, praying, fasting. And here in the second half of which our chapter, or our verses are a part of in Matthew 6, he was concerned with the believer's public life, questions of money, possessions, food, drink, clothing, ambitions, fear, worries. And Jesus made it clear, as we just heard in the passage read, you can't serve God and anything else. Evaluate the use of your time, your talents, your treasures. If it's an idol, smash it, get rid of it. But it can be used for good too. Abuse goes on to say, Jesus called his disciples to understand and recognize the treasures of those whose only hope is found on earth are susceptible to rust and moths. Christians must audit their storehouses and examine whether or not they have been thoroughly accurate in their accounting. In other words, what does your life and what are you labor, value and what are you laboring toward? Does it matter? Does it have eternal value? It's critical to take stock like this, to, to make an audit of our lives. That's because, as John Calvin once said, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. Our hearts have a natural tendency to find and worship idols. We take good things, even necessary things, and deify them making them the, the center of our lives, making them our heart's pursuit because we think they're going to bring us hope, joy, and security in this world. We value them more than anything else. Um, we have idols. People around us have idols. Case in point, I'll mention two things. Can't go by Super Bowl Sunday without mentioning Super Bowl, right? Super Bowl, Taylor Swift. You've heard of them both, right? A year ago, we wouldn't have put them together in the same sentence, but here we are. Uh, circumstances have put them in the same sentence. Far too many people uh, really worship football or Taylor Swift. And I mean this. In, in a, uh, let me explain myself here. Um, the, the, for too many people, they are idols. Football fans you, who, who, who just seem to you know, worship at the tailgate in the parking lot and the game more than anything else, right? And they're, they're the ones who complain that when they watch the Kansas City Chiefs on TV, they show too much Taylor Swift um, because she's there cheering on her boyfriend. And the Taylor Swift fans are complaining because they can't get tickets to her concert, and they're but they're willing to go online and spend thousands of dollars on a single ticket. Both become idols because we see them and we dream of being like them. That rich, wealthy sports 
phenom, that athlete, that football player, that musician who has uh, millions of followers. We become idols. We dream to be like that. We treasure it more than anything else in life. Let me just say, as a bit of a sidebar, I'm a sports fan. I'm watching the game this afternoon. You like, if you like football, watch the game. Enjoy it. If you like music, listen to it. Music is a gift from God. I'm not sure Taylor Swift's music is, but that's another conversation entirely. But the point is, you, know, you can enjoy these things that we have in life and they won't be, and without being, making them idols. Oh, and by the way, you know, I haven't mentioned a lot of things that could possibly be idols. I mean, let's face it, sometimes jobs, sometimes, sometimes family, sometimes travel, sometimes, you know, our phones with all kinds of, of temptations can become idols. Or we look at these YouTubers who are young and stupid and wealthy beyond imagination because of things that they do that people cl- clamor to and, and idolize. The problem is that our hearts are a perpetual idol factory. And so Jesus, in the middle of his Sermon on the Mount, addresses this to some extent, at least, in his teachings here in Matthew 6 about our public life, which, by the way, our public life is really a reflection of our private life. We think we might fool people by our public life. We can't fool God. But he addresses the things about our public life and the orientation of our hearts. Where are our hearts focused, pointing towards, so that we can guard against the idol factory? Three things in this passage. The first is this. I want to focus on the treasure. We've already talked about it. We've named it already. Jesus talks about two treasures in contrast in the first couple of verses. There's earthly treasure, there's heavenly treasure. The treasures of this earth, these, you know, really, they're nothing but temporary pleasures and joy. Nothing on this earth is permanent. You can't take it with you, as the old expression states. Nothing earthly gives you what it promises in perpetuity or forever. It's like that new car smell, eventually it disappears, right? And we think, oh, now I just have a car. Everything we treasure that is of this earth will rust, will rot, will regress, will break down or become temptations for others to steal or destroy. By the way, what's interesting here in, in, in this passage is that in these three little words that I'm going to give you, treasure being the first, and the three stories, they actually are connected, even though the middle one kind of feels like it's not. Um, but in this first one, talking about the treasure, he used, uses the word trevor, treasure uh, three times, I believe it is. Um, and it's the same word. It's a word that could be translated storehouse or collection or um, possessions. By the way, it's also actually the, the word is the word thesaurus. We think of a thesaurus as a book with synonyms, right? Words that mean the same thing as other words. But that word thesaurus literally means a collection. So Roger's thesaurus is simply a treasure chest of synonyms. That's the word that's translated here. But later in the third story, Jesus will use a different word. He'll use the word 
mammon, which is sometimes translated money, which also means treasure or riches, but it's an entirely different Greek word. And I think, and I want to mention it now because I think it's intentional that Jesus uses two very different words at the beginning and at the end of this section to basically capture as much of the entirety of possibilities that might capture our heart. Whether it's physical money itself or possessions and stuff, the treasure trove that we have of things, the possessions that, that we collect. But the specific point of verses 19 to 21, you know, it falls at the very end. It says that whatever we pursue or value most in life, that is where our heart is oriented. And that's what it says very clearly. For where your treasure is, verse 21, there your heart will be also. There your heart will be also. Now, in talking about the treasure, Jesus is not saying you must avoid wealth at all possibilities. It doesn't mean you can't or shouldn't save for the future. In fact, the book of Proverbs tells you you should. So there's wisdom in in doing that. The point here is don't worship wealth as your security. Do you remember, uh, I've defined it before, the word worship is from an old English word that means to give worth or ascribe worth. We tell, when we worship God, we tell God what he's worth. When we worship other things, we tell God what he's worth to. Okay? So the idea here is don't worship wealth as your security. Instead, store up that which is rooted in God's eternal kingdom. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. So, putting our hope in Christ, being generous, doing good deeds, those among so many other things like loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving your neighbor as yourself, sharing Christ and the gospel with others, these are the things that store up treasures in heaven. When we set our hearts on Christ fully, treasuring Him above all things, out of love, We will do the good deeds. We will love others. We will generously share with people who are in need. Examine the heart. Are there things you value most or pursue that store up treasure for heaven? Or is it earthly treasure? What changes might you need to make concerning your heart's worth. The second word I want to turn your attention to is the eye. In this passage, it's a bit, there's a strange transition here, I've got to admit. Verses 22 to 23 seems like a little bit of an awkward shift in the the story and what's going on. 
He's talking about treasures in heaven. Now he's talking about the eye and light and darkness and those kinds of things. It's kind of confusing. Why is he suddenly talking about the eye? I suppose you might look at it and say, well, uh, maybe it's referring to uh, what we see we treasure or are tempted to treasure or just trying to give a description of light versus darkness and those kinds of things. But it's still kind of confusing. As I was doing my study, you know, I came across uh, one author who pointed out that the, the issue is that the teaching that Jesus was using in this moment, the illustration, was grounded in a cultural idiom that we just don't get in our day. Idioms are those expressions, those phrases that are not literal, and when taken as a whole, um, has meanings you might not be able to figure out compared to the meaning of the individual words. Here's an example. Rain, you know what that is? Cats, dogs. It's raining cats and dogs. (laughs) That's an idiom. It doesn't seem to make sense. We understand what rain is, we know what dogs are, and we know what cats are, but you put them together, it's not quickly understood, but in our culture, what it means is an unbelievably heavy rain. And some, some believe the history of it has to do with um, some Greek words, katadoxa. It's raining katadoxa, uh, which kind of means contrary to experience or belief. So it's raining cats and dogs just simply means it's raining unbelievably hard. That's an example of a cultural idiom. Well, in ancient Israel, the idea of having a healthy eye was a reference or an idiom to someone who was generous. To someone who was generous. A person who is generous and not stingy is full of light. The person who hoarded their goods and was unwilling to share was considered full of darkness or having an unhealthy eye. So in verses 22 and 23, he is continuing the same conversation about what we treasure and what we do with what we treasure. He's talking about a cultural idiom that refers to generosity. What should you treasure? Well, Christ. And when you treasure Christ, you naturally treasure generosity. I mean, I've met a lot of generous people in my life, and the vast, overwhelming majority of them are Christians, are people of faith. Now, I'm not arrogantly saying, well, we're better than other people because we give more. And it's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that followers of Jesus are stewards of the things that God has blessed us with, however much or however little the world might think we have. But as Christians, we don't hoard. We, we, we don't hold on tight to, the, to our stuff. Uh, rather, we're generous. I know a lot of generous people. We have the healthy eye. And when we're generous, we bring God's light. It's second nature to people of faith because of our faith. What are some ways you can be generous this week? Here's a hint. It doesn't only involve money. Third word is the servant. Finally, Jesus gets to the heart of the matter, pardon the pun since we're talking about what our heart treasures, by pointing out the danger of how the love of money and possessions can become an idol we worship. 
Earlier, I quoted 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19, but in verses uh, 6 to 10 of that same chapter, it says this in its fullness, a portion of which is on your screen. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Money itself is not the problem. The love of money what we treasure, our idol, that is the problem. And it has even caused people to walk away from the faith. So Jesus points out in the last couple of verses in this passage that you can't serve both God and money. It's one or the other is your master. And we can't serve both God and money because it says we will hate the one and love the other. Uh, As one author points out, he says, the human heart isn't designed or able to worship in two distinct directions at the same time. The worship that God demands is characterized by wholehearted devotion. Anything less is taking the Lord's name in vain. Think of that. That's significant. I think it, to use an idiom, hits the nail on the head. Which master do you serve? Three words to remember. Treasure, I, servant. What you value most, what you treasure most, that's what your heart is set on. A healthy eye full of light is someone that is generous, but those who hoard are stingy, full of darkness. We can't serve both God and money. The human heart just isn't capable. It is, as John Calvin said, a perpetual idol factory. Now, why have we focused on these verses this morning, this this particular Sunday? I mean, for some, you know, you come to church every week. Whatever passage the pastor's preaching is the passage he's preaching no big deal, and maybe it's simply just a reminder of, of things that you already know, or you might, you might have noticed the connection, at least in part, to the previous few sermons of right priorities, of focus, of redeeming the time, but I fully confess I have another reason. As mentioned earlier, in a few days, the season of Lent begins. It begins with Ash Wednesday. We're not having an Ash Wednesday service this year um, for a variety of reasons, but if you're not familiar with the season of Lent, let me just briefly explain behind it. Now, the word Lent comes from an old English word for spring, lengthen. It means the lengthening of days. As I've said before many times, it's not a word you're going to find in the Bible. There's no chapter or verse that tells you this is what you must do, here's how to practice Lent, and here's why. But yet it has become a very important time for us as Christians to use the season to reflect, to repent, to renew, to recommit. It's why it was important for me to pray the prayer we did earlier, uh, asking 
the Lord to spring clean our hearts because truthfully, we need that from time to time. As Mark Trotter writes, Lent was originally established for new Christians. They were to spend 40 days and 40 nights preparing for baptism. If at the end they still wanted to follow Jesus, then on Easter Eve they would be baptized as the sun was rising in the east, signaling a new day, a new era, inaugurated because of the resurrection. That's why we're putting word out for people. If, I mean, if you want to talk about baptism and uh, membership, please talk to me. We would love to walk you through that and use the season of Lent as a possibility to prepare your hearts for it and then um, celebrate Easter Sunday <laughs> with, with baptism. Anyway, Trotter goes on to say, later the church used the same 40 days as a time of renewal for those who were already Christians because at, at a certain point, at least in history, at a certain point everyone was a Christian because you were baptized as the empire just decided. So the time of Lent was used as a time of renewal, recommitment to the Christian life, examining our lives in light of the one we are supposed to follow. So Lent becomes a period of preparation as we move towards celebrating the resurrection. As I say at Advent, I say of Lent, it is a, an in-between time event. Advent is the time in between the first time Christ came and the time he will come again. When we refer to um, Lent as an in-between time, uh, to quote Carla Nelson, who once wrote in a denominational devo- devo- devotional, she said it's, it's an in-between time. It is the time between the declaration of guilt and the actualization of the sentence our guilt deserves. It begins on Ash Wednesday, the day that declares death is certain, and it ends with Easter, the day that begs to differ. So why practice Lent? It's a good question. Having the right understanding, a right heart attitude is the key. We don't, let me be very clear, we don't earn favor with God by doing good works or participating in Lent. We don't become more worthy because for 40 days we gave up chocolate. But in the season of the journey of Lent, we are reminded of our shortcomings, as well as of the riches of Christ and the abundant blessings of his mercy and grace. We're reminded that where our treasure is, there our heart is also, and our hearts need to be tuned to Christ. The reality is that we are free as Christians to participate and free not to participate. Like I said, no command in Scripture that says you must. No, nothing, if you don't want to give up chocolate in the next 40 days, don't. <laughs> Unless it's an idol, then it should be given up anyway. Not just for 40 days. But what you find in the Scriptures, time and time again, is the, the exhortation the strong command of, to, for us to grow deeper in our faith. We don't grow deeper if we don't examine our lives, and we don't examine our lives based on what we think is right and wrong, but by what the Word of God says. And the Holy Spirit speaking to our hearts, revealing what needs to happen in our hearts and in our lives. Lent is just simply another opportunity for us to examine, change our routines, focus intently on Christ and our spiritual journey through the season to seek ways that we can draw closer to him.
And when we discover, what we often discover, what most people discover is that they are able to treasure Christ at the end of all of that much more than they treasure anything else. So my friends, my, my agenda this morning is simply to obviously preach the word of God, but in particular, to have you think about what is your heart focused on? What does it treasure? My encouragement, indeed, obviously, is to treasure Christ above all things. Prepare your hearts. Seek him. Seek him with your whole heart, the scriptures say, and you will find him. Treasure. I, servant. Treasure heavenly things. Be full of light, generosity. Serve God. Let's pray. Gracious God, as the song we'll sing in a few moments' time declares the blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. You indeed have blessed us with abundance. Not as the world measures, but with what is important for now, that we may enjoy now, and that will last through eternity. May we treasure you, Jesus, above all things. May we be generous with what we have. May we serve you because our hearts cannot serve in two directions or or worship in two directions at the same time. Lord, spring clean our lives because our, our hearts are a perpetual idol factory. Clean out the cobwebs, the extravagance and the waste. And create in us a clean heart, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.